0: Magic Without Fears, hermetic podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. To suffer is to work. A great sorrow, suffered, is a progress accomplished. Those who suffer much live more than those who do not suffer. And as Axiom 17 from the legendary Alphonse-Louis Constant, or Lefis-Lévy, who allegedly had very little experience with practical magic, in fact, maybe none at all, and when you read his books, that comes through often very saliently. The practical part of his Key to the Mysteries has very little to offer in the way of advice on practical magic. He does, of course, theorize as much as anyone, and even more than most. There's a lot of insights in his theories, I've always found. I've been reading him ardently since I was around 13, 14. And, obviously, every time you go back into it, you see more and learn more than you uh, did the first time. He actually makes a point about that in the keys of the mysteries that I should share with you here. Well, What he essentially says is anything that we really know we have to learn and forget multiple times. And he moves on to say that that we've lost everything we ever knew in human society and have had to relearn it. I don't think that's factually true. We didn't have space travel probably back in uh, ancient Egypt as far as I know though. Certainly there's a few people who disagree with that little gem but there's many things we have today that we know they didn't have in the past, so what he's speaking of more is perennial philosophy or Prisca Theologia more exactly, because uh, the Sophia Perennis is the idea that we didn't lose the secret stream of wisdom, and the Prisca Theologia is the idea that we did corrupt that secret stream of knowledge, and we have to put it back together again. Which other, Whichever... Uh, you subscribe to, I think you'll you'll be okay <laughs> take whichever path through the wood they all lead up the mountain eventually so Though he may not have ever practised any magic himself, uh, he says some interesting things among these are the lofty sciences of the Kabbalah and of magic promise man an exceptional, real, effective, efficient power, and one should regard them as false and vain if they do not give it. Judge the teachers by their works, said the Supreme Master. Of course, he means Jesus there. This rule of judgment is infallible. If you wish me to believe in what you know, show me what you do. That's a very good point. You know, if uh, people say they can do something, let them show it. Or if they are something, let them show it. God, in order to exalt man to moral emancipation, hides himself from him and abandons to him, after a fashion, the government of the world. He leaves himself to be guessed by the grandeurs and harmonies of nature, so that man may progressively make himself perfect by ever exalting the idea that he makes for himself of its author. Man knows God only by the names which he gives to that being of beings and does not distinguish him but by the images of him which he endeavors to trace he is then in a manner the creator of him who has created him right he believes himself the mirror of God and by infinitely enlarging his own mirage or tzelem I guess would be the Hebrew word here for both mirror and mirage he thinks that he may be able to sketch in infinite space the shadow of him who is without body, without shadow, and without space. To create God, to create oneself, to make oneself independent, immortal, and without suffering, there certainly is a program more daring than the dream of Prometheus. Its expression is bold to the point of impiety, its thought ambitious to the point of madness, Well, this program is only paradoxical in its form, which lends itself to a false and sacrilegious interpretation. In one sense, it is perfectly reasonable, and the science of the adepts promises to realize it, and to accomplish it, in perfection. Man, in effect, creates for himself a god corresponding to his own intelligence and his own goodness, He cannot raise his ideal higher than his moral development permits him to do. The God whom he adores is always an enlargement of his own reflection. To conceive the absolute of goodness and justice is to be one's self-exceeding just and good. The moral qualities of the spirit are riches and the greatest of all riches. One must acquire them by strife and toil, goes back to the axiom I thought I should start with in this little brief review of Le Clef. And uh, this is a fun copy. It's a first edition I I have that I've found since I've been uh, uh, looking at some old things of mine. And uh, translated by Crowley, this version. One may bring this objection, the inequality of aptitudes, that's a hot topic today actually isn't it these days we don't know what to do with the the simple problem of IQ for example that cannot really be raised or lowered much save by you know a little bit a little bit and of course we're all dumb when we can't pay our bills um... if you don't know that fun fact check that out some children are born with organisms nearer to perfection. Yeah, I'm born the same day and same year as Justin Timberlake, and yet, no matter how much he is maybe a, a better pop star and singer than me, he's just not as physically attractive as me, and that's something that he probably has to wrestle with on a daily basis when he looks at his photo in his wallet of me. So, you know, we, some are more near perfection. And uh, I would argue that JT and I, you know, are similar in a lot of those ways, but, you know, he's just not going to have the the Adonis-like face that I have. Anyway, but we ought to believe that such organisms result from a more advanced work of nature, and the children who are endowed with them have acquired them if not by their own efforts, at least by the consolidated works of the human beings to whom their existence is bound. It is a secret of nature, and nature does nothing by chance. Well, maybe... Though patterns are good, yeah, right? The possession of more developed intellectual faculties, like that of money and land, constitutes an indefeasible right of transmission and inheritance. Yes, man is called to complete the work of his creator, and every instant employed by him to improve himself or to destroy himself is decisive for all eternity. I've always loved the idea that, you know, moments, every moment, especially how you treat every moment, does... Resonate eternally, and uh, that's why I've always thought when you're doing a ritual or a show, you if you if you put your all into it in the right way, if you approach it in the right way, if you treat the moment in the right way, alchemically as it were, then you create some gold there from whatever you had as base, and that is then eternal. And that's what's allowed me to often do things in moments that I find special and that others would also have found special. The idea that we can, as Lévi says, complete the work of our Creator, which in a sense is also completing the Creator ourselves, is an idea that really came back actually in the early 20th century with the process theology and Paul Tillich if you're familiar with that massive movement in thought and uh, that led straight into ecological and came out of Teilhard de Chardin's uh, Newosphere and uh, you know Future and Destiny of Man if you, if you have looked more into that great Jesuit thinker who was quite heretical to his own church as all great people seem to be it's almost like uh, you have to the greatest love what is orthodox. I love what is orthodox. I love the idea of orthodoxy. But you have to almost love it so much that you're willing to push its limits and go beyond them where you have to, to the heterodox and the heretical. I really do love the line and every instant employed by us essentially. I'm paraphrase some of the language here because as much as I don't get bothered by these hims and hers and he's and whatever. Um I think it's one of the things they never suspected actually they'd be judged on, just like we probably don't suspect what the future generations will judge us just judge us on. Uh, you know, like I don't think anyone they ever thought back then that they would be judged on the masculine language or sexist language, as it's fair to it is fair to call it that. And I'm not doing what some of you think I'm doing by using that term. Actually, when I went into grad school 20 years ago, they they said, you know, no sexist language to use, which meant no gendered language, but I had been trained better academically even before I went into grad school, and I was quite familiar with the fact that if you're using he or her, if you need these personal pronouns in academic writing, you've already dropped down to a lower level of academic writing. You shouldn't need to ever use those sort of things in uh, the highest quality and uh, the very highest quality of academic writing, unless you're, of course, you know, creating an aporia in the text and you want to violate that rule, shock the person out, like in, like using a caesura in in poetry and a dead stop mid line in in the rhythm. Then it can be quite effective. But I'll change lang- language where I want because who cares but i love that he says and in every instance employed by us to improve ourselves or to destroy ourselves is decisive for all eternity if you think about that like what is really meant by decisive for all eternity is it talking about in that power of now in that eternal now what we've done is is what we've done the emphasis on importance of what we do i think is therefore very striking and something we should really think about. Uh, When we, we, we have opportunity costs, whatever we do is something we haven't done or don't do. And when we do something, we make a statement in eternity about who we are and where we are on our journey. And when we lose something, tragically, it can't come back. That's the proper definition of tragedy according to Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, he said tragedy is something that can never be regained and and life is precious and therefore life is tragic because when people we love are gone, they're gone from the physical plane. Actually in Crowley's introduction to this book he says some interesting little gems about that which I'll, I'll come back to at the end. Our works make us so much what we are that our body itself, as we have said, receives the modification and sometimes the complete change of its form from our habits. That's actually Aristotle. He's thinking there of uh, Nicomachean ethics, which is the form of virtue ethics, the idea that if you repeatedly do a virtuous thing or a good thing, a good habit, then it will form into a virtue within yourself. And that's an older form of ethical thought that has largely been thrown away today. And uh, for, for many decades now, ethicists and universities have argued it might be a good replacement for Judeo-Christian morality, is to bring back good old Greek virtue ethics. Slavey says, A form conquered or submitted to becomes a providence or a fatality for all one's existence. Those strange figures which the Egyptians gave to the human symbols of divinity represent the fatal forms. Typhon has a crocodile's head. He is condemned to eat ceaselessly in order to fill his hippopotamus belly. Thus he is devoted, by his greed and his ugliness, to eternal destruction. Man can kill or vivify his faculties by negligence or by abuse. He can create for himself new faculties by the good use of those which he received from nature. People often say that the affections will not be commanded, that faith is not possible for all, that one does not remake one's own character. All these assertions are true only for the idle or the perverse. One can make oneself faithful, pious, loving, devoted when one wishes sincerely to be so. One can give to one's spirit the calm of justice as to one's will of the almighty power of justice. One can reign in heaven by virtue of faith on earth by virtue of science. The man who knows how to command himself is king of all nature. And that is really beautifully said and this is the idea of the eternal opportunity to transform oneself entirely. And it's it's what uh, Michel Foucault called the technology of the self. A lot of people like to only focus on one-tenth of what people like Foucault wrote, and then they have, uh, you know, lobotomized the rest of these thinkers of 20th century philosophers so that they can return to uh, older forms of philosophy that they also don't fully understand. It's really sad. I mean, philosophers shouldn't be treated this way and our intellectual traditions shouldn't be thrown out baby in bathwater and all in exchange for uh <laughs> older modalities that we are then abridging and politicizing and don't even understand. It's just yeah. I won't get too much in that. I've I've you all know what I think about the anti intellectualism of our day. We are going to state forthwith in this last book by what means the true initiates have made themselves the masters of life. How they have overcome sorrow and death, how they work upon themselves and others, and the transformation of Proteus, how they exercise the divining powers of Apollonius, how they make the gold of Raymond Lullion of Flamel, how, in order to renew their youth, they possess the secrets of Postel, the re-arisen, and those alleged to have been in the keeping of Cagliostro. In short, we are going to speak the last word. Of magic, which is so much ironic, since he continues through the final practical secrets of magic to give next to no practical secrets or any sort of insight into how to do magic. In fact, the best example or guidance L. F. S. Levy gives on practical magical exercises is to refer you to read Saint Ignatius's uh, exercises, which, of course, is what Ignatius used to found his. Order of the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. And uh, there's a lot of wonderful things those little laddies have done throughout time, eh? Mm Mm-hmm. And some not-so-great things. But they do continue to this day to produce some of the the Roman Catholic Church's greatest intellectual theologians who usually get censored. I mean, the semiotic Christology uh, by the Jesuit Roger Haight Um, Jesus symbol of God. That's the first Christological study that looks at Jesus semiotically from a Roman Catholic and it did not get the imprimatur of the Vatican. It was not considered proper reading for a good Catholic just like Théard de Chardin's writings were not. You know the Catholics are very famous for condemning their people in their own lifetimes, even burning them at the stake and then building statues to them centuries later saying, oops! But Levy recommends, if you want to learn magic, read attentively the book entitled The Exercises of St. Ignatius, and note with what magical power that man of genius operates the realization of faith. He orders his disciples to see, to touch, to smell, to taste invisible things. Now I did do these exercises for many years myself when uh, um, Ignatius was in fact my baptismal name. He wishes that the senses should be exalted during prayer and the point, to the point of voluntary hallucination. This is interesting, right? Because this is actually very old techniques and shamanic teachings coming back into the Catholic Church through St. Ignatius and the Jesuits. And that is something worth considering. You are meditating upon a mystery of faith. St. Ignatius wishes in the first place that you should create a place, dream of it, see it, touch it, Sounds pretty astral to me, eh? If it is hell, he gives you burning rocks to touch. He makes you swim in shadows thick as pitch. He puts liquid sulfur on your tongue. He fills your nostrils with an abominable stench. He shows you frightful tortures and makes you hear groans superhuman in their agony. He commands your will to create all that, by exercises, obstinately persevered in. Everyone carries this out in his own fashion— but always in the way best suited to impress him. It is not the hashish intoxication which was useful to the knavery of the old man of the mountain. It is a dream without sleep, an hallucination without madness, a reasoned and willed vision, a real creation of intelligence and faith. Thenceforward, when he preaches, the Jesuit can say, What we have seen with our eyes. What we have heard with our ears and what we our hands have handled, that do we declare unto you. The Jesuit thus trained is in communion with a circle of wills exercised like his own. Consequently, each of the fathers is as strong as the society and the society is stronger than the world. Of course, Levy has to end with some very doxological uh, praise of the church just to you know keep himself uh, in the good books of some certain folks in his life. So, the key of the mysteries is, without doubt, Levy's great, greatest book. Um, Crowley's right about that. But when he does get to practical magic at the very end, he has basically nothing to say about it. Either he is keeping some profound secrets, which of course would be readily available from most of the books published today, or he didn't actually practice magic, which is what everyone says. Everyone says he never practiced magic, he was just an armchair occultist, most people agree with that point, um, and I'm sure some scholars might prove otherwise eventually. But going back to earlier, there's some interesting stuff that I thought we should look at. Because Levy is very good at big picture stuff. He's very good at placing the role of the mysteries in, in human society and human thought, as much as he's, you got to understand the hermeneutic horizon and the limitations of his own perspective in his time and place. He died in 1875, the same year Crowley was born. Crowley, of course, famously is convinced that Crowley is the reincarnation of Aleph Slavi, just as most people with issues like to believe they're the reincarnation of someone famous, as opposed to just like, oh, hey, in a past life I was some monk and I castrate myself with a rock because I had issues with the church's teachings on sexuality. Now, if you told me that was your past life, then I'd believe you. But if you're Cleopatra or McGray or Mathers, fuck off. (laughs) Sorry, I'm joking. I mean, believe whatever you want, like each to their own. I don't care. And I could be wrong about past lives. Maybe we all were. Maybe we were all Cleopatra at the same time. Think about that. So here's some of Livy's best stuff that he's ever written, and and this struck me, I remember, very young in life. On the brink of mystery, the spirit of man is seized with giddiness. Mystery is the abyss which ceaselessly attracts our unquiet curiosity by the terror of its depth. Mystery is the abyss which ceaselessly attracts our unquiet curiosity by the terror of its depth. The greatest mystery of the infinite is the existence of him for whom alone all is without mystery. And we're talking, of course, there of God. For Levi, this would also be Jesus. For some it would be Osiris. For some, Odin or whatever your savior thing is. For the Kabbalists, this would be Kanpin, the greater face, as opposed to Zawir-Anpin. Comprehending the infinite, which is essentially incomprehensible, he is himself the infinite and eternally unfathomable mystery. That is to say that he is, in all seeming, the supreme absurdity in which Tertullian believed. Tertullian was a theologian and uh, got himself into some interesting situations with some of his radical statements. Necessarily absurd, since reason must renounce forever the project of attaining to him, so we can't become part of God with reason. Necessarily credible, since science and reason, far from demonstrating that he does not exist, are dragged by the chariot of fatality to believe that he does, not, does exist and to adore himself themselves with closed eyes, right? We can't reason and science can't prove that God doesn't exist. And in fact, most people of reason and science back in, in, in these days, you know, this would be 145 years ago now, um, did believe in God, but they couldn't explain God, they couldn't disprove God, and therefore they just believed wholeheartedly in him. Though though God belief wasn't quite actually as prominent as they think in those days. In fact, belief in God in 1875 had become a very puritanical, socialized, normative thing, which is why Nietzsche wrote what Nietzsche wrote during that time. That's why Nietzsche wrote that God is dead, because it was the puritanical, social, moralistic God of society that led to no spiritual transformation at all, and just maintained the authoritative power structures and cultural and social norms of their day. I mean, this is the the battle that was going on culturally in their time, as opposed to ours. And that's why Levy says are dragged by a chariot. Reason and science are dragged by a chariot of fatality to believe that he does not does exist and to adore him themselves with closed eyes, right? Why? Why? Because this absurd is the infinite source of reason. The light springs eternally from the eternal shadows. Science, that Babel Tower of the Spirit, May twist and coil its spirals ever ascending as it will, it may make the earth tremble, it will never touch the sky. God is he whom we shall eternally learn to know better, and consequently he whom we shall never know entirely. The realm of mystery is then a field open to the conquests of the intelligence, march there, as boldly as you will, never will you diminish its extent. You will only alter its horizons, and that is one of the best insights uh, you could you could find. Really, you've got to just go forward, go into it all the way, take things to their their conclusion, to their finality. I mean, this shiny syndrome stuff, this this path hopping, this gathering of badges, um, this this uh, dabbling in every little thing which you're. A uh, higher self tells you to dabble in is, is a bunch of bullshit. Um, everyone with any spiritual accomplishment will all, without exception, tell you that. You need to take things to their conclusion. Otherwise, you haven't done
1: them at all.
0: Levy says the realm of mystery is then a field open to the conquests of intelligence, right? So we we are, he said earlier, touching on God being a co-created experience with us. God doesn't reveal God's self. God hides God's true self so that we strive to find God's true self. And in finding God's self, we create our own selves and therefore God's self. Get it? Yeah. In our journey, as we push forward, we alter the horizons. That's the only thing we actually change. We change the context and the place that we are in of our perceptions, and that is the gold. To know all is an impossible dream, but woe unto him who dares not to learn all. We can't know it all, but you better try. That is what you dare to learn. And who does not know that in order to know anything, one must learn eternally? If you stop learning, you stop knowing anything at all. And it's true, you know, you see this all the time with people who have just sort of given up and turned into lemmings, staring out the window on the bus. It's like even the things they do know, they don't really know anymore because their brain's not working. They're not questioning, they're not thinking, they're not even challenging the things that are true that they know let alone the things that are untrue. And you can see that degradation of the spirit and the soul. There's like almost a separation of the layers of the aura where they're just cut off at the astral level from everything beyond into the, in the outer aura. They're just completely locked into their emotional, mental inner aura space, and that mid-level that transmits them that veil that they can penetrate, the paraket, into the macro and the outer aura that connects us to all things, they can't feel it, and they get glimmers of it, maybe what they would call intuitions, but they don't have that connectivity. Then there's, of course, people who get locked into their own aura and their own connectivity. Uh, they, they create God within themselves so much that they can't... They stop experiencing nature, and then you get locked into the God of yourself, and think what you're communicating with is is, is macro and and higher neshama but is actually your own ruach you've made god yourself and that's that's a also a terrible mistake to make and it comes from again not being willing to learn and because the main practice of being being willing to learn eternally is openness to the other and that is the big other of the other other sounds like these aren't technical terms but they are <laughs> They say that in order to learn anything well, one must look, forget it several times. I mentioned this earlier. I love this part. The world has followed this method. Everything which is today debatable had been solved by the ancients. So, maybe. Before our annals began, their solutions, written in hieroglyphs, had already no longer any meaning for us. A man has rediscovered their key. He has opened the cemeteries of ancient science, and he gives, us, gives to this century... A whole world of forgotten theorems, of syntheses, as simple and sublime as nature, radiating always from unity and multiplying themselves, like numbers with proportions so exact that the known demonstrates and reveals the unknown. I like that. To understand this science is to see God. Of course, it's not true that we knew everything and forgot everything. Like, that's not overall true at all. To understand this science is to see God. The author of this book, as he finishes his work, will think that he has demonstrated it. Then, when you have seen God, the Hierophant will say to you, Turn around, and in the shadow which you throw in the presence of this son of intelligences, and by intelligences, by the way, here, we're not talking about reason and science, we're talking about spirits. That's what intelligence means. Spirits are angels, even, because angels are just spirits... On a, on a mission from Gad. There will appear to you the devil, that black phantom which you see when your gaze is not fixed upon God. And when you think that your shadow fills the sky for the vapors of the earth, the higher they go seem to magnify it more and more. I love that. Beautiful language and well translated by Monsieur Crowley Crowley for the vapors of the earth, the higher they go, seem to magnify it more and more. The higher phantom will say to you, Turn around in the shadow which you throw in the presence of this sun of intelligences. There will appear to you the devil, that black phantom which you see when your gaze is not fixed upon God, and when you think that your shadow fills the sky. It's beautiful. To harmonize in the category of religion, science with revelation and reason with faith, to demonstrate in philosophy the absolute principles which reconcile all the antinomies, and finally to reveal the universal equilibrium of natural forces, is the triple object of this work, which will consequently be divided into three parts. We shall exhibit true religion with such characters that no one, believer or unbeliever, can fail to recognize it. So he's talking about breaking down the important parts of religion so that it doesn't, you don't have to be religious for these things to matter. And that's one of the, the interesting roles that cultists have often played throughout time is to say, look, okay, you got a problem with the word religion. You have a problem with the fact that humans have created institutions to transmit knowledge since shamanic times when we were all eating rocks. Fine, you got a problem with that? Let's break it down we shall establish in philosophy the immutable characters of that truth which is in science, reality, in judgment, reason, and in ethics, justice. So truth in science is only true if it sh- plays out true in reality. In judgment we have to be able to reason through things, so if You hear someone making a judgment you can't reason through. It's not part of truth. And in ethics. We need justice. This is one of the things we like to overlook, eh? Finally, we shall acquaint you with the laws of nature whose equilibrium is stability. And we shall show how vain are the fantasies of our imagination before the fertile realities of movement and of life. We shall also invite the great poets of the future to create once more the divine comedy, no longer according to the dreams of man, but according to the mathematics of God. Mysteries of other worlds, hidden forces, strange revelations, mysterious illnesses, exceptional faculties, spirits, apparitions, magical paradoxes, hermetic arcana, we shall say all, and we shall explain all. Who has given us this power? We do not fear to reveal it to our readers. There exists an occult and sacred alphabet which the Hebrews attribute to Enoch, the Egyptians to Thoth, or to Hermes Trismegistus, the Greeks to Cadmus, and to Palamedes. This alphabet was known to the followers of Pythagoras and is composed of absolute ideas attached to signs and numbers, By its combinations, it realizes the mathematics of thought. Solomon represented this alphabet by the 72 names. This is the Shem Faresh, of course, written upon 36 talismans. Eastern initiates still call these the little keys or clavicles of Solomon. Yeah. You want to talk about magical work to do? I think I've been working with the Shem angels and the 72 spirits for like uh, 20 years now and I'm not nearly done. There's a lot of a lot of fields of magic you can get into, and, and you should stick with one till you feel you've mastered it. These keys are described, and their use explained, in a book the source of whose traditional dogma is the patriarch Abraham. This book is called the Sefer Yetzirah. With the aid of the Sefer Yetzirah, one can penetrate the hidden sense of the Zohar, the great dogmatic treatise of the Kabbalah of the Hebrews. But it's written in Aramaic, of course, right? In the Middle Ages. The clavicles of Solomon, forgotten in the course of time and supposed lost, have been rediscovered by ourselves. Without trouble, we have opened all the doors of those old sanctuaries where absolute truth seemed to sleep, always young and always beautiful, like that princess of the childish legend who, during a century of slumber, awaits the bridegroom whose mission it is to awaken her. Uh, some beautiful chemical wedding symbolism from the Kimische Heiratze von Christian Rosenkreuz oder? After our book, there will be still mysteries, but higher and farther in the infinite depths. This publication is a light or a folly, a mystification or a monument. Reflect, read, judge, and it's it's really amazing what Crowley says about this book. Um, and I like I like Crowley's words, in this case. And so we're going to look at them. What Crowley says is that this volume represents the high watermark of the thought of Levi. He is no longer talking of things as if their sense was fixed and universal, which he definitely did in his early work. He is beginning to see something of the contradiction inherent in the nature of things, or at any rate, he constantly illustrates the fact that the planes are to be kept separate for practical purposes, although, in the final analysis, this turns out to be one. Yes, the four worlds are separate, but one. The four trees are separate, but one. They're in one tree, they're in each sephira, all that jazz. And we need to separate things out to think about them, to experience them in, in certain ways. Like, like imagine the ladder. Imagine Jacob's ladder is a rope ladder. And it's only when you uncurl it that it becomes all these different steps. But when you roll it up and sling it over your back, it's just one, one object, one tool. One tool that contains many steps within that tool to achieve the ultimate tool, which is, of course, knowledge and conversation. Alistair Crowley goes on to say, This and the extraordinarily subtle and delicate irony of which Alephis Levy is one of the greatest masters that has ever lived have baffled, and of course when Crowley says, (laughs) <laughs> that Levy was a master of something that has ever lived, he's also subtly saying, therefore I am as well, since he's the same person in his mind. That's that's a great little cheekiness from Crowley. Have baffled the pedantry and... <laughs> I got this. This and the extraordinarily subtle and delicate irony of which Alephis Levy is one of the greatest masters that has ever lived, have baffled the pedantry and stupidity of such commentators as Wait. He means AE weight, of course. So he's right there in the first paragraph of this book, smashing weight over the head. Poor Arthur Edward Waite, getting called a pedant, which means pedantic, of course, and overly detailed to the point of losing the track of the main strain of thought. And stupidity. He's called a stupid pedant. (laughs) Oh, lovely. So funny, right? English has hardly a word to express the mental condition of such unfortunates. Dummheit, in its strongest German sense, is about the nearest thing to it. He's calling, wait, a Dumkopf. He's saying dumbness. The essence of dumbness is about the nearest thing word we have to describe how stupid these people are. Crowley, crowley, crowley. It is as if a geographer should criticize Gulliver's travels from his own particular standpoint. But he's right about weight, I think, in a lot of these ways. I mean, a lot of those guys got got super structuralist and uh, lost uh, track of the movement of how thought works. When Levy says that all that he asserts as an initiate is subordinate to his humble submissiveness as a Christian and then not only remarks that the Bible and the Koran are different translations of the same book, but treats the Incarnation as an allegory, it is evident that a good deal of submission will be required. Crawley says when Levy agrees with St. Augustine that a thing is not just because God wills it, but God wills it because it is just, he sees perfectly well that he is reducing God to a poetic image reflected from his own moral ideal of justice, and no amount of alleged orthodoxy can weigh against this statement. So what he's saying is, uh, Levis be- gained a nuanced sense of theology here, and, and and Christology especially, because he's saying God isn't making just good things, but things that are good are therefore made by God, and therefore he's flipping the process of creation of God into one where we are co-creators with God or of God. And that is a a nuance and a mystical form of thought that comes into most thinkers later on in their life. And Crowley's noting that Levy has made this little transition Kabbalistic in very many ways, as it is. Note that his... his, uh, his very defense of the Catholic hierarchy is a masterpiece of that peculiar form of conscious sophistry which justifies itself by reducing its conclusion to zero. One must begin with one, and that one has no particular qualities. Therefore, so long as you have an authority properly centralized, it does not really matter what that authority is. In the Pope, we have such an authority ready-made, and it is the gravest tactical blunder to endeavor to set up an authority opposed to him. Success in doing so means war and failure, anarchy. This, however, did not prevent Levi from ceremonially casting a papal crown to the ground and crying death to tyranny and superstition in the bosom of a certain secret Areopagus of which he was the most famous member. We're talking about some uh, heretical theology and Gnosticism strains there. When men. And when a man becomes a magician, he looks about him for a magical weapon. And being probably endowed with that human frailty called laziness, he hopes to find a weapon ready-made. I never related to that thing. Uh, I always found in magic from the get-go that, like, nothing worked out right away when I just got what I had, put it together, and tried to see if something would happen. I need... you have to earn it. And if there's no challenges... Uh, I heard a podcast on us nerd once on self initiation we 're barabbas i don 't really know who he is, but I know he made a re- one really good point, which is that the the key to the self initiation if it is even if it is possible, is the challenge. There has to be the challenge, and it 's very hard to challenge ourselves that 's why when we 're in a in an order or a college of some sort, challenges are put upon us that we that the teacher can see will be challenging for us that we can nevertheless still accomplish. And that's something we have a hard time setting for ourselves. And it's knowing that that bar is there in front of us and someone will hold it to us that triggers some sort of different behavior in us. It it lights a fire on us. It stokes a flame hotter than we can usually stoke it for ourselves. And that pressure cooker creates this transformation we call initiation. Thus we find the Christian magus who imposed his power upon the world taking the existing worships and making a single system combining all their merits. There is no single feature in Christianity which has not been taken bodily from the worship of Isis, or of Mithras, or of Bacchus, or of Adonis, or of Osiris. In modern times, again we find Alan Bennett, Bhikkhu Ananda Matea, trying to handle Buddhism. All these people, of course, were trying to syncretize and bring in what mysteries they could to lead them on their path to enlightenment, or beyond enlightenment, since enlightenment is really the starting point in Western mysteries, the the challenge is once you go up to heaven, then you have to survive going to hell and climbing back out of hell, and that's the work of the adept. Others again have attempted to use Freemasonry. There have been even exceptionally foolish magicians who have tried to use a sword long since rusted. It's probably referring to a few many things in that little gem of a sins. Wagner illustrates this point very clearly in Siegfried. The great sword Nothung has been broken, and it is the only weapon that can destroy the gods. The dwarf Mime tries uselessly to mend it. When Siegfried comes, he makes no such error. He melts its fragments and forges a new sword, in spite of this intense labor which this cost, it is the best plan to adopt. There you can see Crowley talking very much about, he see, saw himself and his own magical tradition as melting down all the previous ones, including the Golden Dawn, and and burnishing them into the Book of the Law and the OTO and the AA and all of his magical works. Um, and that that's fair. You know, you can say that, that that's what we all have to do in a sense, though I know many who would say that is the work of the that isn't the work of the initiate or the adept, that is the work of the greater adept. You have to make your own system eventually at five six, five, and seven, four, and then achieve the whole path you have achieved through the system that you were given in your own system afterwards. But if it's not a successive step, if that's your initial attempt, you're fucked. Crowley says Levy completely failed to capture Catholicism. And his hope of using imperialism, his endeavor to persuade the emperor that he was the chosen instrument of the Almighty, is Napoleon of course, a belief which would have enabled him to play Maximus to little Napoleon's Julian, was shattered once and for all at Sedan." See, that's the mystery really that Crowley didn't ever learn because he didn't stay and get trained in the second order of the Golden Dawn. He didn't get any of that. He barely got a five-six initiation at best before he melted down the pieces of that sword and all the other swords, Buddhism, Freemasonry, everything he could find, OTO because it was already in existence he just took it and melted it down and made his own he melted he did this process before actually mastering any other processes that's the problem I see with Crowley's he tried to become a master of masters without having become a master first and you see that in a lot of his later workings in his failure with the Enochian ethers, and his failure with the Abermelon I'm probably losing some listeners here but that's okay I've shown recently, in the past couple months, plenty of love for Crowley and appreciation for his contributions to the world. I don't think I think I should be allowed a little a little critique here and there, and it's just my opinion. So come on, chill out. Crowley's great accomplishment is that he created something that has lasted far far beyond him, and if it wasn't for his addition of the letter K to the word magic, which I hate. We might not know about it. It might have died out in a major way or just gone so far underground that it was only alive in Waldorf schools and Freemasonry and the archives of different libraries and not become the revolution it has today as we await for the end times and the aliens to eat us all and the fifth dimension to merge the timelines and whatever else is going to happen. I don't know. Canada's locked down so hardcore I can't even find an apartment. So, we're gonna just go with the flow from here and see what happens. Deal? Deal. It is necessary for the reader to gain this clear conception of Livy's inmost mind if he is to reconcile the contradictions which leave Waite petulant and bewildered. (laughs) I sort of love how much he takes shots at Waite. Like, why not? A.E. Waite came on too strong. Christian stuff just don't belong. That's a shout-out to Edward there, and the Order of the Golden Dawn band. It is the sad privilege of the higher order of mind to be able to see both sides of every question, and to appreciate the fact that both are equally tenable. Such contradictions can, of course, only be reconciled on a higher plane, and this method of harmonizing contradictions is, therefore, the best key to the higher planes. Harmonizing contradictions. We've said so much about these mysteries beyond the abyss before. We don't need to say more about them now. And they they really are best learned in context of the practical techniques once you cross the veil of Paraket. But we're not there. We're going to chill out in Asaya, in Malkut, for a long time. So chill. I've said that too much, haven't I? I know. It's freezing cold up here. I can't, I can't, I I keep thinking of being chill and cold and it doesn't stop. At the end, Crowley says it seems unnecessary to add anything to these few remarks. This is the only difficulty in the whole book, though in one or two passages, Lévi's extraordinarily keen sense of humor leads him to indulge in a little harmless bombast. Who doesn't love that? We may instance his remarks on the grimoire of Honorius, We'll get there some other time. We have said that this is the masterpiece of Levy. He reaches an exaltation of both thought and language, which is equal to that of any other writer known to us. And that is high praise. And uh, it's a good book to dip into over the years. I, I, I always recommend Levy as a good place to consult and uh, get insights on things that you're studying, but net, not make it the focus of any of your studies, since he never really did... Show any signs of practice, just uh, a beautiful mind for theorizing. Uh, I don't know what else to say, folks, but I'm going to do what I can, when I can, while I can, wherever I'm at. Conx om pax, laden extension. medicscienceenterprises.co.uk